0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ, I'm Jerome McDonald. The summer of 1968 was one of global upheaval. At home, anti-war protests swept Grant Park 50 years ago this week. Tens of thousands of demonstrators descended on the Democratic National Convention just months after presidential contender Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Reverend Martin Luther King was killed that same year after speaking out against the Vietnam War. By the time of the convention, nearly a thousand Americans were dying per month in Vietnam. Nonetheless, Mayor Richard J. Daley called in National Guard troops. The convention was Daley's opportunity to let Chicago shine, avoid racial tensions, and save face with the pro war Democrats. But together, the protesters were more than Chicago could handle.
1: The demonstrators are determined to march on Convention Hall tonight in protest the police the just determined not to let them anywhere near the place so the police are at the park in force the demonstrators resisted when police attempted to arrest a young man who tried to rip down an american flag the police fired tear gas canisters the demonstrators threw them back at the police it was clear that the battle chicago's first real battle of the day was about to be joined many of the demonstrators anticipating more gas attacks Covered their faces with handkerchiefs. Then chanting, kill the pigs, they began bombarding the police with cans, bottles, boards, firecrackers, tomatoes, and just about everything else they could find.
0: Chicago wasn't alone in violent crackdown against protesters in 1968. That same summer, Mexico was gearing up to become the first Spanish-speaking country to ever host the Olympics. The 1968 Games went down in history as athletes demonstrated with Black Power salutes, boycotted apartheid South Africa, and protested the Soviet invasion of Prague. For months, Mexican protesters resisted harsh labor practices and government crackdowns that paved the way for the Olympics. Like in Chicago, Mexican authorities didn't want protesters to screw up their big moment. The BBC's Julian Megliorini reports on what happened next.
2: It's October 1968, ten days before the Olympic Games, students are demonstrating in Tlatelolco Square in Mexico City. Suddenly, gunfire erupts.
1: The military just surrounded the square. It was an oblong, really, and there were gaps in it. And the soldiers just went in and fired, and fired across. I mean, they, they could have been shooting one another, quite frankly. Do you remember the film Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? The final scene of the shooting, well, it's exactly like that.
3: I cannot pinpoint the very exact moment when I heard the first shot. What I I remember very clearly is that very soon, the noise was unbearable. It was like hearing a bomb exploding, but continually...
2: British journalist John Rhoda and the Mexican poet David Huerta were both in the square that day. David was part of a peaceful protest movement led by students which had already staged marches throughout the summer. Mexico had been awarded the Olympics because it was modernizing fast and the government was seen as stable. But the young demonstrators wanted the country to be more democratic. I was 18. I was...
3: In my last year of high school, and we just had this feeling, this sensation of restlessness. It was a very rigid society, a very authoritarian president. We wanted only just a little bit of democracy. Nothing scandalous, nothing revolutionary. We didn't want to overthrow the government. We were really clear very early on about the fact that we were not against the Olympic Games. We were not trying to boycott the Olympic Games. We were not trying to stop them or disturb them in any way. We wanted to have the demands of our movements answered, but we don't want to stop the organization of the Olympic Games.
2: But the repression hardened. In the month before the Olympics, the military tightened its control of Mexico City. The protest organizers went into hiding, but shortly before the Games, they called a rally. The venue, Tlatelolco Square, is deeply symbolic to Mexicans because its buildings show influences from the whole of the country's history. Speaking to me in the square, David Huerta remembers how the student leaders gathered on a balcony of the Chihuahua apartment complex and began to address the crowd.
3: I arrived all by myself at 5 o'clock in the afternoon that day. I was a little bit scared. But you see, I joined some other high school students... And we were together listening to the speeches. The speakers were in one of the balconies of the edificio Chihuahua. The fear and the worries sort of disappeared or are put aside. We started to feel really happy in in a party mood. And we started to shout, President must go. We used very hard words against him. He was not a very handsome man. And uh, we felt that we were going to start all over again. We're going to organize ourselves again and we're going to get what we want.
2: But then a military helicopter appeared above the protesters and seemed to signal to the security forces. Kate Doyle is from the U.S.-based National Security Archive.
1: As the speeches began, a large group of military tanks and trucks and soldiers, groups of soldiers, began to move in around the edges of the square and the military seemed to be watching, observing. And as the helicopter dropped flares, shooting began from the apartment buildings, up high over the plaza, down into the demonstrators and the military.
3: It was really confusing, but I can tell you this. I saw in a very blurry way that soldiers were advancing towards us, on one side, from the back of us, so to speak. And I saw, but I didn't understand what was going on, some men with the white handkerchiefs. And I didn't know who they were. I saw at one point that some of them were armed and were shooting against us and against the soldiers. The students were caught between
1: two fires. We didn't know where to run to. That shooting, we now know, was initiated by a Mexican security battalion that had been put together with the security of Mexico City in mind for the coming Olympics that had been pre-placed in the apartment buildings overlooking the square. That shooting initiated a volley of gunfire from the military that began to fire back into the crowd up at the apartment buildings and straight ahead into the thousands of gathered men, women and children. The military thought that student demonstrators had fired at them and savagely began to fire back. We decided to
3: save our leaders. We decided to run towards a Chihuahua building, trying to protect our leaders. We ran towards the stairs to the third floor where the speakers were, but we were not able to get really close to those stairs because there were people shooting against us. So we decided to turn and run, and we saw soldiers running towards us and uh, at that time some of us decided to defend ourselves throwing stones against the soldiers. It was stupid it was irresponsible, it was all in illusion because (laughs) until we saw some of us falling down, we went on running, trying to save our lives The people tried to hide anywhere they could in the buildings, in the gardens in the church that was closed by the way, the people of who are in charge of the church closed the doors. Absolutely, nobody was able to enter there. And uh, we took shelter in one of the buildings back there, and uh, we stayed there. Some of us wandered until 10 in the evening, 10 at night or 11.
2: David Huerta managed to creep away from Tlatelolco Square, but many people didn't make it.
1: There were dozens and dozens of bodies, and the bodies were removed and taken to morgues and taken to hospitals. And some say there were bodies that disappeared and never showed up again. The government of President Díaz Ordes that evening sent in carloads full of cleaning people with brooms and buckets and water and sponges. And they literally wiped away overnight the traces of what had happened. Here we are more than 40 years after the massacre took place. And and no one really knows to this day exactly what happened.
2: Although Mexico is now a multi-party democracy, there has never been an exhaustive official inquiry into the Tlatelolco massacre. And despite some recent attempts, no senior official has ever been convicted of ordering the killings. It's not even known exactly how many demonstrators died. This has made it even harder for people like David Huerta to deal with their experience.
3: I didn't know what happened exactly and I have been trying to understand it fully in the life of my country, in my own personal life all through these 43 years the fear came to me later on many, many days or weeks later at one point I said, what has happened to me? what have they done to us? they could have killed me I'm still alive, I'm a survivor somebody died in my place that's one of the worst ideas that have accompanied me in my life all these 43 years. I'm here talking to you, Julian, because somebody died in my place here. It's real. Somebody took a bullet that was meant for me. Somebody died for me here.
2: David Huerta is now an academic and a respected Mexican poet. The events at Tlatelolco have been a central theme of his work and his own personal way to never forget. That was
0: Julian Megliorini of the BBC program Witness. Coming up after the break, we'll hear an interview I recorded in 1998 on the 30th anniversary of the massacre with its preeminent investigator. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about just one of the many uprisings that made 1968 a year for the history books. Everybody knows about the 1968 Democratic Convention here in Chicago, but in Mexico, a student movement on the plaza of three cultures at Clate Loco that same year turned fatal. On October 2nd, the government of President Diaz Ordaz decided that the demonstrations, which had begun in July, had gone on long enough. Around 300 protesters were killed. On the 30th anniversary of the massacre in 1998, I spoke with historian and human rights activist Sergio Aguayo, whose relentless research led to one of the most complete histories of the event and the cover-up. Aguayo is still writing, and his latest book is called From Clate Loco to Ayotzinapa, Violence of the State. I started by asking Aguayo how the Mexican student movement fit in with others happening
4: at the same time around the globe. I think that the common aspect was that uh, broad segments of society were unsatisfied with established order for different reasons. And that had to do with changes in society and political culture. And in that sense, uh, Mexican youth was not different from French or American one.
0: How did the student movement begin and spread? Where was the, the focus of it and how did it bloom
4: out? It began as a, with a stupid incident, a confrontation, a street fight between uh, students of a private and a public uh, high school in downtown Mexico. But the reaction of the police, which acted with extreme brutality, was perceived by, the, by students and by professors as an aggression that could not be tolerated. That is, the difference, uh, brutality, police brutality in Mexico was not uncommon. What was uncommon at the time was the decision of uh, the part of professors, parents, students, not to tolerate that brutality. And then in a few days, the rebellion spread throughout the country and gradually more and more uh, universities, private uh, schools in Mexico City first and then in 24 different states start to demonstrate and to go on a strike to demand an end to police brutality, the dismissal of the police chief and uh, some other basic liberties. The respect of the Constitution was uh, underlying all this uh, list of demands, And that was the beginning of two months and a few days that shook Mexican history for the rest of the century.
0: Where was the government at right then? Um, Exactly why did they decide not to grant or grant some concessions to the students? I mean, we know the Olympics are coming up here pretty quickly. Why did they choose to take the path they took?
4: There were two or three main reasons. One, uh, the Personality of the president. The president, President Gustavo de ordaz had a very rigid attitude towards uh, uh, opposition. He just did not tolerate that uh, someone, uh, let's so students, could uh, challenge his wisdom. I mean, he was uh, the Byron, the kingdom. I mean, he was a sort of a king that could decide uh, for everybody. And that was one factor, I mean, his power, his personality. Second, that uh, the regime was at at the height of its power. Never before or after the regime, the Mexican authoritarian regime would have so much power. They control everything. They control media, unions, political parties, everything. And they had the support of the international community. They were supported by Washington, Moscow, they were supported by Washington, the Soviet Union, and Cuba, by the Palestinians and, the, and Israel. Everybody supported the Mexican uh, uh, regime. Why? For different reasons, because it, it served the interests of everybody. The U.S. Uh, was interested at the time. I mean, Lyndon Johnson and Gustavo Diaz Ordaz were extremely close friends, and uh, the Americans uh, were satisfied with the status quo in Mexico because it was an exception in a continent full of disorders and guerrillas and uh, military coups d'etat. The Soviet Union, because uh, Mexico was uh, a country that allowed them to have uh, an embassy full of spies, and what they wanted was to have uh, a country that gave them the place to spy on the U.S. and on some (laughs) others. Cuba, because Mexico was the only country giving uh, them diplomatic recognition, and for them it was uh, extremely important to have uh, good relations with the Mexican government. So on and so forth. I mean, the truth of the matter was that uh, the student rebellion was a rebellion against uh, one of the most powerful, uh, sophisticated, and shrewd uh, authoritarian regimes that was supported by the international community.
0: How did the um, student Rebellions built, what was their scope? How many kids were out there? Uh, what kind of kids did they start in, you know in one place and and become you know a broader based
4: thing than a, than just a student movement It was a mass movement in one of the demonstrations the one of august twenty seven 1968, about four hundred thousand people participated that just to give you an idea of the of the dimension that had it was about fifteen percent of the population of Mexico City above 14 years old. That was remarkable indeed. I mean, it is as if uh, today one or two million people would march uh, uh, to protest uh, government policies. And uh, it was a moment when uh, there were about one million students on a strike throughout the country. So it was a very important numerically, and it was very important... Uh, for qualitatively because it was not a radical movement in the demands it had. It was radical in its symbols, the use of Che Guevara uh, as a banner, but in the demands it was quite liberal. The New York Times correspondent at the time in Mexico recognized that aspect. I mean, how moderate the students' demands were.
0: And then the government chose, is it basically because of the Olympics to, to really draw the line and say, well, we've got to stop this now? Were the Olympics that kind of a, a make-or-break issue for the government then?
4: There were two main reasons. One, that uh, the president of the regime was not willing to accept or tolerate any challenge to the so-called principle of authority. But also the Olympic Games play a very important role because it was a pressure on the government uh, for them to do something to stop the demonstrations because it was a very uh, a striking uh, denial to the official image of Mexico because Mexico was presented at the time as a model for the rest of the world. It was presented as an example, an economic miracle, uh, a peaceful uh, political system. Therefore, the government simply could not tolerate the idea of thousands of uh, visitors, the most important uh, media, n- newspaper, and TV channels from the world coming to Mexico to witness a youth rebel against the government. They had to do something. And they did something. I mean, they just uh, decided to crash, to repress mercilessly. They decided to crash the demonstrations on October 2nd.
0: You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ Chicago. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm speaking with Sergio Aguayo, a visiting professor of history at Colegio de Mexico, and we're talking about the student movement and massacre in Mexico in 1968. And uh, what have you learned about how they went about that on October 2nd? And, um, give us a, a, an idea of the dimensions of the crushing. Uh, it sounds like it was air, land. It was a, a, a large, focused, fast thing that was cleaned up in an instant, even though it was, uh, you know, a huge massacre.
4: It's it's very difficult to describe in a few minutes the dimension that that operation had. Uh, They deployed thousands of troops and uh, police forces, each one of them with different orders because the military units didn't know exactly what was going to happen. A few ones at the top, the president, perhaps the minister of the interior, Luis Echeverria, the minister of defense, uh, knew exactly what was going to happen. So the square in which there were about 5,000 students demonstrating in the square of the three cultures uh, was surrounded by the army. And the army was ordered to move and detain the leadership and to remove all the demonstrators.
0: And how many people are in the square now, and how many army people are there and when, when it comes to thousands?
4: There, is, there were about between 2,000 and 3,000 members of the security apparatus. The figures are still not very clear, but there is about between two and 3,000 were deployed. Then the military was ordered to move the people out of the square and to detain the leadership, which was positioned in one balcony in a building facing the square. And the military, and I have the the orders that they received, the written orders, were specifically uh, asked not to shoot unless they were attacked. When the military arrived in the square, snipers started to shoot at the military and at the students.
0: Who's snipers?
4: What I have found now, and I can say it. uh, paramilitary groups organized by the same government. Therefore, what the president ordered or tolerated was for a group of snipers to position themselves in the buildings surrounding the square and at the moment when a flare came out around 6.15 in the afternoon to start shooting against the army and against the students. Therefore, the reaction of the army was to start shooting back And the fight uh, and the shooting went on for about 90 minutes initially until 7.30, 7.45. And then it began again around 10.30 in the night and it went continue until 2 o'clock in the morning. It was a battle of major proportions because there were about 300 snipers positioned all around the square and shooting against each other. Therefore, the numbers of casualties must have been very high.
0: And uh, the snipers at the time
4: were described as being who? Members of paramilitary groups and members of the police force of the federal district. I have documented that uh, members of the special force against uh, demonstrators, the so-called grenadiers, were put on the roof of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which is the highest building in the square, uh, floor 21st, with the order to start shooting at the specific building. And uh, therefore, it was a moment of chaos because nobody really knew exactly what was going on. They were uh, wearing civilian clothing, and they had guns too? No, the army ha- was in uniform. Mm-hmm. But then you have the snipers in civilian clothes and the police fo- the police forces in uniform. But they had different orders. I mean, the whole scheme was diabolic in a way, I mean they were given different orders the army was told you don't start shooting unless you are shot first then the police force the ones on top of uh, on the roof of the ministry of foreign affairs were told when you see the flare you start shooting at building uh, chihuahua then the snipers were told when you see the flare you start shooting to the students and to the soldiers and to put an element of uh, uh, horror, an additional element of horror, the the government, the federal government sent a team of filmmakers to film everything from the moment it began until the end. Six crews were deployed around the square uh, filming what happened.
0: And where is that film today?
4: That I don't know. I mean, I have interviewed the Filmmaker, and I, I know exactly how many hours of film he took. I have the the brand of the of the film, but I don't. I haven't seen. That's in hands of, in the hands of the government. Well, Th- listen, well, this is what I'm telling you. This <laughs> is uh, uh, the first time that is told. Uh, I mean, like this in three years.
0: Have, has the government shown excerpts of that film? I mean, I heard that, that they would showed like, uh, somebody a few minutes of it one time. And,
4: no, that and was one, a film that was uh, shot by the CBS crew and by a crew of a New York TV station that showed the moment when the army got into the square and when the flare comes in the uh, pre-Columbian uh, ruins. No, the film that I'm talking about, as far as I know, nobody has uh, seen it. I mean, no, nobody that is not uh, in, in government.
0: And why do you think exactly the government decided, well, why don't we film this massacre that we're um, instigating here?
4: I don't know exactly. I hope that by the end of the investigation of the research, I will know. But my hypothesis is that uh, they wanted to simulate a provocation on the part of the students. Therefore, they deployed the snipers. And in filming that, they were going to show that the students, the radical students, communist instruments of communism were shooting as soldiers, and that therefore it was justified for them to detain all the leadership and to uh, repress the student movement. I have the impression that things got out of hand, that they just didn't uh, evaluate that uh, the consequences that all this was going to have and that they were going to be unable to control the shooting because I I have interviewed uh, people from the military and from the police forces, and they just didn't know exactly what was going on. They were completely disoriented because the soldiers were told one thing and all of a sudden they have to start shooting. And the square was uh, in a blackout because the lights went off. So just imagine that's the situation, that chaos at the moment.
0: So do you think that the president, the interior minister, and the defense minister sat there, cooked up this plan, basically, but didn't really think the largeness of it through? They thought, well, we'll have some shootings and, and there will be some deaths and stuff, but it it won't go on and on. We'll
4: just go in there and, you know, take the student leaders out and... and uh... Yes, because they have done it before. Exactly the same pattern I found uh, in a demonstration in the state of Guerrero, in Chilpancingo, in December 30, 1960, and in the state of San Luis Potosí, September uh, uh, 15, uh, 1961. The snipers shooting at security forces response, because at the moment, the government control media, and when you control media, you can uh, regulate the official you can regulate what is going to be known by the people. What they did not uh, estimate, I think, was that uh, Tlatelolco was not going to be forgotten.
0: What about the other instances? How many people died in those? Why did, did were things more out of hand at Tlatelolco?
4: In uh, Guerrero, there were about uh, 10 people assassinated. In San Luis Potosí, about 7 the dimensions of Taltelolco were just bigger. And the dimension of the movement and the fact that there were uh, foreign journalists present made a difference. Oriana Fallaci, the all famous uh, journalist uh, uh, that had covered Vietnam, made a scandal. I mean, and the Italian newspaper just went wild because how uh, their darling, I mean, Oriana Fallaci was. Uh, a heroine of feminism and a journalist, uh, an extraordinary journalist was, going, was being shot. And then there were a number of other journalists, New York Times. The column that published the New York Times was just devastating. The following day, written by Paul Montgomery, it said that the, the army attack and shoot innocent bystanders, innocent students. The army felt that it had been betrayed. And that's the feeling they have now. We were betrayed because we were set in a trap. They were put in a trap. Of course, things get out of control, simply. I mean, one tends to think of historical events in rational terms, always. Because one thinks that history must be rational all the time, and that's not the case. Most of the times things happen for irrational reasons. That's the hypothesis I have at this moment.
0: That was an excerpt from my 1998 conversation with historian and human rights activist Sergio Aguayo. We'll continue after the break with the conversation about the Clate Loco massacre, which was 50 years ago this year. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Let's continue the conversation on the global upheaval of 1968 with a look at Mexico. Authorities killed 300 student activists in the run up to the Olympics that year. I spoke with Sergio Aguayo, a historian, about the massacre in 1998, and we'll return to that conversation with a look at how the global community reacted to the show of force.
4: That was uh, what I call the second massacre the massacre of silence, they decided to support the government. They decided to keep silent. And uh, what the British ambassador at the time told me in a recent interview, we enter in a conspiracy of silence because they decided not to complain because there were not uh, international forces pressuring them. The contrast between the student massacre in Mexico and Tiananmen Square in China is striking in that sense, because in '68, for a number of reasons, I mean, Mexico was isolated at the time. The students and oppositions did not talk with foreigners. The uh, Mexican government was very legitimate. But the truth of the matter was that the international community didn't, didn't pay attention, enough attention, to the gross uh, human rights violations that have occurred in Tlatelolco on October 2nd. Therefore, Mr. Avery Brundage, who at the time was uh, from Chicago, from Illinois, the,
0: the, head of the, Olympic Committee. the
4: head of the Olympic Committee, decided to support the Mexican government. And he declared, as he has done in some other cases, the Games must go on. And the Games went on because after that, the government, the Mexican government, just controlled everything, news, the families of those disappear and killed, and uh, it was imposed a silence on the population, and uh, the Olympics went on. Explain a little, a little bit more about
0: how the Mexican government controlled the evidence of the massacre and what happened uh, immediately afterwards, and and to the families, to the bodies, to everything.
4: We don't know exactly. I mean. The official figure for those uh, who died in Tlatelolco was 29 at the moment. Later it was raised to 42. But from the beginning there were all sorts of uh, speculations about the figure. The most used uh, number has been about between 2 and 300. That is the one used by the uh, CIA and the State Department, in internal communications, they estimate. But uh, what the government did was to clean the square, to take the bodies away, to detain about, about 2,500 people. They sent them to jail, put the students, the leaders, uh, with sentences of up to 17 years at the time, With the support of the judicial system, the government then the Ministry of Foreign Relations imposed control on the on the diplomats. Octavio Paz was fired at the moment because he protested, and he was fired, and he was harassed. In uh, in Paris, when he went to Paris, the Mexican ambassador in Paris wanted to put Octavio Paz in jail to stop him from making statements to the press. I mean, a number of uh, measures were taken to guarantee that there would be only one official version and that the students, the memory of tlalte or that Tlalte-Lolco would be forgotten soon.
2: Hmm.
0: What kind of impact did, did this in reality have on Mexico and the possibility of, of democratic reform or, or change in Mexico? What was the impact on it?
4: Tlatelolco became a symbol of uh, all the negative consequences that uh, an authoritarian, an an accountable regime can have on the life of a society. Here we have the extreme case of a massacre. Nobody knew how many people died, therefore you cannot forget because the ceremony, the ritual of uh, the farewell that is done in in, in a funeral was not accomplished. I mean, it is as if you were still asking yourself how many people die in uh, Kent State right. here in the U.S. when the four students die. It became a symbol of everything that was, can be wrong with an authoritarian regime that used force with impunity. And as a symbol, it has not been forgotten, and there has been attempts to find out exactly what happened With the gradual liberalization of the Mexican political system, archives have opened this year in 1998. Therefore, uh, we historians have been able to take a close look at the documents. Of course, many documents are missing. The archives were uh, clean and were censored before they were delivered, but uh, we have been able to find sufficient evidence to reconstruct parts of what happened. At least I mean. uh, and to have a general picture. And in that sense, uh, Tlaltelolco, of course, I mean, the resolution of the mysteries uh, about Tlaltelolco are not going to bring democracy to Mexico, but will help in the process of uh, understanding what went wrong, extremely wrong, at the moment of our history, and taking measures to prevent that to happen. And in doing so, perhaps, we will be able to heal and to reach uh, some level of reconciliation between uh, government and society i think that, that, those are the the main elements uh, of, uh, or the main reasons why Tlaltelolco has uh, has been considered a symbol by so many people
0: would the government ever entertain having a commission to look into what happened there or you know some sort of pseudo truth commission
4: they promised a couple of times and they said that there would be a commission to study what happened, but they never did nothing. Actually, I mean, it is not common that governments take the task of, of airing their dirty laundry. Covering. I mean, no, no, I mean, it is not common. It, is, yeah. it, it's, it usually falls in these the, the so-called commissions of truth that uh, play a useful role of trying to explain the black holes or the the worst moments in the history of uh, society. We are in, in one of those moments. There is a commission of truth, an official commission of truth in Mexico, that was created by Congress, and they are working. And there are independent researchers like myself, who had been working in this uh, problem for some years. And I hope that by the end of this year, we will be able to have a collective answer that will uh, solve, if not all, at, l- at least most of the mysteries about uh, what happened and why it happened uh, on October 2nd, 1968.
0: You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ Chicago. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm speaking with Sergio Aguayo, a visiting professor of history at Colegio de Mexico. And we're talking about the student movement and massacre in Mexico in 1968. And uh, when you look around the globe... At other student movements uh, you mentioned, Tiananmen Square, but there's lots of student movements today out there, lots of protests. Uh, which ones are parallel to this, and have things changed, much? Here?
4: No, what uh, I think the Indonesia at, at this moment is in a way similar because they are protesting against an authoritarian regime that has started to react with uh, strong hands. I mean, and with uh, with anger to that. Uh, questioning of the students, of why uh, the president has so much power. The principle, the essence of that confrontation was what uh, made La Terolco happen in Mexico. The question would be why students become the voice of rebellion in a given moment, and why they just keep quiet for decades. For that, I mean, I really don't have an answer, because there are periods in history in which uh, Young people are, are more in rebellion than in some other times. Um, in the 60s, it was a generation of, uh, in which uh, youth challenged authority and established order. And, and, and that was the, the mood of the times. Perhaps in the end, three years after, we are seeing a reemergence of this pattern again, in which the young rebel against uh, the abuses of power.
0: What were you doing in 1968?
4: I have to escape Mexico. I mean, I have to come to the U.S.
0: <laughs> you were a student.
4: I was a student in Guadalajara. I went to Mexico City, and I was, I was impressed by the vitality and by the moral strength of the demands that were made by the students. So I went back to my hometown with the idea that uh, to propose, I was a student leader at the time, that uh, we should join the student movement in Mexico City, And the reaction of the the local government was to harass and and to threaten me. So I had to come to the U.S. and I came to Milwaukee, in which I read in in the local newspaper the news on October 3rd. And I was just shocked. And that uh, memory has been haunting me for 30 years. So when I became a historian and I have the resources to do an independent research, I decided I'm going to find out what happened because I, I have to know it for myself I mean because that event changed my life in many ways even if I was not in in Tlaltelolco, but for many reasons it changed my life and it threw me in, in a road that uh, I am still in and therefore that's I mean those events changed the life of a generation and I think it is extremely important that one uh, brings the facts to light and that for us to discuss and to talk and to face why that happened.
0: It seems like um, the generation that is coming to power, um, your generation, the generation that is of age in Mexico now, how do you think that has influenced what's happening in Mexico today? Are there student leaders that are prominent who, who we might not remember as student leaders in 1968? Where did this generation go?
4: You already mentioned, I mean, the, those of us who were uh, 18, 20, and 68 are now in positions of leadership, universities, newspapers, uh, political parties, government. Therefore, my generation is the one that is uh, leading the transition to democracy. And the memory of 68 is very strong for different reasons. I personally have very clear that uh, we must make all that is in our power to prevent another kind of event like that one. Because violence after Tlaltelolco, many, many of my friends decided that they had to take arms against the government. I did not. But they decided that there were no other options because the government that massacres and assassinates in that way had no hope of peaceful transformation. And then we had 10 years of dirty war in which thousands of people were killed in a war that has not been recorded or registered by the international community i myself got involved in the defense of human rights because i do believe uh, that uh, the best possible alternative is uh, a gradual peaceful transition to democracy and to the rule of law therefore i have very clear that if we want to avoid and to prevent and uh, the use the indiscriminate use of violence we must have in our memories uh, Exactly why it will all happen. Because in the defense of human rights, I have learned that if you want to defend human rights, you must understand the logic of the perpetrator, of the one who is going to pull the trigger. Because if you understand the, the reasons why he is acting, it is possible to take actions to contain him or to prevent that to happen. It is a possibility, of course. So, uh, I have devoted many of my years of my work as a scholar to to understand the dynamics in the use of state uh, coercion, of state force, and the study of Tlatelolco is perhaps it has been the most difficult research I have done in my life. It has been uh, in emotionally very consuming, but I'm very pleased because I at this moment in May of. 1998, I f- I'm finally starting to understand, and I have the documents to support it, what happened. I don't know how it's going to be received, uh, what uh, what I say, but that's another matter. <laughs> that's
0: when do you think your research will be done? You're going to write a book that will be published when?
4: This year. I'm simultaneously writing and doing research. I came to Chicago to do research and write. Therefore, I have been working intensively in uh, integrating documents and going to archives and finishing. What are you going to name the book? I still don't know. There are so many possibilities. One is uh, The Will and the Silence. There is also a possibility that I name it uh, The Roads or The Pathways of Horror because that's another approach. uh, I don't know. At this moment, I'm still... Writing names like... uh, uh,
0: (laughs) It's not an event that easily titles, I imagine. No. What what do you think when you still see the um, massacres in Mexico, something like uh, what happened in Chiapas? I mean, we had 60-some people die. Has repression in Mexico taken, I don't know, a different turn, or is it still pretty
4: similar? I mean, people continue to die in Mexico. I mean, a lot of people continue to die in Mexico for political reasons. That is sometimes overlooked outside. And uh, when a massacre like that uh, happens, I mean, I get very sad and very worried. Uh, And uh, I continue to do what I have been doing for 20, 30 years, to create organizations uh, for the people to understand that they have rights and that they have to defend them. Because the best defense against uh, irrational state violence and impunity is for people to organize themselves and to be willing to take some risks to defend their rights. When you have a critical mass of enough people uh, throughout the country willing to, to not to rebel, because it goes beyond that. It is not a rebellion against authority. It is a decision to give themselves self-respect as individuals. When that moment comes, it is very difficult for the irrational uh, official to abuse people. Of course, it has a social cost because uh, many people in that process, many people suffer and die even. But uh, it is the only long-lasting way to stop police brutality or government abuses. There are other paths I know, I understand. I mean, there are people that... uh, have tired of that, of this uh, long-term uh, approach and that take arms against the government. And there are now guerrillas in six, and seven, ten states in Mexico fighting against the government because they believe that's the only option left. I am one of the ones that uh, believes that there are still other options and that one must continue to fight in this uh, new direction. Understanding that uh, massacres like the one that you referred to in Chiapas are uh, a, a disclaimer to what I'm saying. Because for the families of those who were massacred, the talk about peaceful solutions uh, sounds as reformist uh, um, ideas of uh, conformists. I mean, um, But I have seen 68, um, I live in 68, I live the city war in Mexico, I have witnessed uh, wars in Central America in the 80s. I have seen wars in different continents. And I, I am still convinced after all these years um, that the the best possible option is to... Uh, the long, slow process of raising the consciousness of the people for them to understand that they have rights. And at the moment that they understand that, that they must take the steps to defend those rights. And at that moment, uh, democracy is a possibility.
0: That was historian and human rights activist Sergio Aguayo on Worldview in 1998. Aguayo ended up publishing his book, 1968, The Archives of Violence, that same year. It remains one of the most complete histories of the Clate Loco massacre out there, and his latest book links 1968 to the 2014 mass kidnapping in Mexico, and it's called Clateloco to Ayotzinapa Violence of the State. In 2003, the CIA file from the Clateloco massacre was released after persistent Freedom of Information Act requests. The documents show that the U.S. sent military equipment to Mexico to help secure the Olympic preparations. There were also daily correspondences between the CIA and Mexican security services. In one letter six days before the massacre, the head of Mexico's federal security assured the Americans that, quote, "...the situation will be under control very shortly." Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida, thanks to Shazmin Hussein and Viviana Garcia-Blanco for production assistance and Shelley Steffens for engineering. My conversation with Sergio Aguayo in 1998 was produced by Edie Rabinowitz. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.